Welcome to the Strong for Performance podcast, where we share wisdom and practical tips to help you grow stronger in all areas of your life. I'm your host, Meredith Bell. I interview experts who offer real-world experiences that you can apply to your own journey. If you enjoy my podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of the Strong for Performance podcast. I'm Meredith Bell, your host, and I'm passionate about interviewing guests who will inspire and challenge you. If you enjoy my show, be sure to rate and review it on your favorite platform. My podcast is brought to you by Performance Support Systems, my company. We publish software tools and books for improving the way people communicate with each other at work. And you can learn more at growstrongleaders.com. Today, I am so excited and honored to have as my guest, Ashish Advani. Ashish, welcome to my show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for accepting my invitation. Ashish is president and CEO of Junior Achievement Worldwide, also known as JA Worldwide or just JA for short. It's one of the world's largest NGOs dedicated to preparing youth for employment and entrepreneurship. They're in more than 100 countries and reach 12 million students each year. And what I love about Ashish is he is a lifelong social innovator. He has a passion for entrepreneurship. He is an alumnus of JA himself and found that his participation in the program as a teenager stayed with him during his entrepreneurial endeavors, which have included leading two businesses from startup to acquisition. And his first venture was acquired by someone you may have heard of, Richard Branson and his Virgin Group in 2007, and it was rebranded as Virgin Money. Also, Ashish is a member of Marshall Goldsmith's cohort of 100 coaches, and he is committed to sharing leadership lessons and to mentoring the next generation of leaders. So Ashish, hello again. And what I want to start off with is for you, for for my listeners who may not be familiar with JA, I really want them to learn what Junior Achievement is all about because my guess is because of who some of my listeners are, they may want to know more and even get involved as volunteers themselves. Well, that would be awesome. You know, one of the things about JA, I'll describe exactly what we do in a moment, but we've evolved into becoming one of the world's largest volunteer engagement organizations, which has sort of happened to some degree on its own. That wasn't specifically our mission, uh, but as we think of how we deliver our educational programs, what we found is volunteers who have a business um, experience set uh, from companies, for example, are the best role models for kids to expose them to what careers actually look like. So if any of your listeners are interested in volunteering, or work for companies who would want to engage, there's a very simple way for them to get involved. But let me first you know, answer your question and tell you what JA actually does. So believe it or not, we are over a hundred years old. So we turned hundred in 2019. And for throughout the entire history of JA, we've had the mission of inspiring and preparing young people for the global economy. In the early days, what that really meant was we were preparing young people who'd come back from World War I 
to get integrated into society and have the skills for jobs. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, over the course of the early years of JA, we were largely known as a program in the United States that helped young people develop the skills to launch a business and actually get business skills. Uh, as the world you know, changed after the Second World War, we grew and we, we now operate in over 115 countries. And in all of the operations of JA you know, around the world, we are still committed to that mission. But of course, the way we do it varies dramatically based on the circumstances of each local uh, sort of country in office. That's great. And so what was it that brought you to work at JA? What appealed to you? Um, and just tell us more about what you personally are involved in doing in your role as CEA. Sure. CEO, so, sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. So, I, you know, I will say that I've been with JA now for over five years. And I had no idea when I joined, um, uh, you know, five years ago that uh, the organization is as global as it is. It's one thing to read it on paper or even hear it in a podcast, but to actually live the fact that we have these, you know, local teams, what I like to say as a network of teams, which operates in all these different geographies who all share the same mission and actually have so much in common. It's very energizing because you get to see young people interact with our staff, interact with our volunteers in places as far as field as say Saudi Arabia and China and you know, Russia and the UK and India. And there's so much similarity in what young people aspire to and frankly, how our staff work that it gives you a sense of hope for the world because you see these similarities. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the future with JA, it's obviously changed so much in the last 100 years. What do you see happening? What are some of your goals for growing, expanding, having an impact? Well, there's a number of things which are impacting not just JA, but education writ large. You know, one of course is the advent of technology and technology being used either as a delivery channel to reach students or even as a mechanism of learning uh, where you see all these ed tech tools and ed tech startups really enhancing the learning experience to allow different learning, um, uh, you know, people with different learning profiles get you know, better and better learning outcomes. So for example, virtual reality didn't exist a few years ago. And you know, rather than doing a traditional job shadow where you go and meet an employee at one company and travel, you know, spend the day with them learning what they do in that company, which by the way, data shows that when that happens, the likelihood of that young person sort of selecting that as a career goes up quite substantially. Mm. And I can tell you story after story of how that's actually happened in practice. You know, if you're in middle school or high school and you go and spend the day with a particular business executive who works in a law firm or a manufacturing facility or a consulting company or a technology company, your knowledge of that field goes up. So you start to feel more comfortable with that as a career choice, right? But what virtual reality has done is you can actually have multiple experiences. You can actually explore if you're, if you're a young person sitting, let's say in, in, in Singapore, which, you know, in Singapore, most of the companies are in professional services, right? Law firms and, and banks, et cetera but perhaps you have an interest in chemistry or perhaps you have an interest in manufacturing and engineering. It'd be hard to get a proper you know, factory tour in Singapore. So what virtual reality gives you the ability to do is to see multiple different work environments and mm -hmm. it really opens your eyes up. 
There's this wonderful phrase I love, which is, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And I think it's absolutely true, particularly for young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. Mm. Um, because if they only think what they can do is what their parents have done or what their parents' friends have done, it's a limiting factor on their own trajectory. Wow, that's quite a gift for them to be able to have multiple experiences like that. I had no idea. You know, one thing I'm thinking my uh, listeners may have a question about is how does this work in practicality? So you've got these volunteers that go into middle and high school, right? Those are the target groups you, you work with. Um, So the target group, let me just ask answer is between five and 25 in some countries, we skew very young in some countries, we skew very old. But I think in general terms, I think high school kids is common across the world. Mm -hmm. And so your volunteers are going in, are they part of a regular uh, class that's being held? Are they a special class separate? And what's the curriculum like? So in most parts of the world, in most countries, our programs are delivered in school during the school day. Um, And we built very deep relationships with with ministries of education um, at the local level, at the national level, at the regional level, depending on the country, to enable that to happen. That's actually one of the, I think, one of the core strengths of our organization. In addition to having that school time, in some parts of the world, we also supplement that with after-school programming, or if we don't have access to school time, we exclusively focus on kids in, in, in an out-of-school setting. For example, uh, you know, 70% of young people in Africa are actually out of school. Uh, most people are shocked when they hear that statistic. So um, we, by definition in Africa, in order to grow, we have to deliver more and more programs in, in non-school settings. Mm. Yeah, that's tough. Um, when you have to, <clears throat> on the other hand, you're making quite an impact when you can bring in what you're teaching to people who otherwise wouldn't have had any opportunity to be exposed. True. And I'll say, I'll say it even differently, which is for some of the young people we reach in places like say Kenya, you know, entrepreneurship is not a neat thing you learn in school in case it happens in your career. It is what you do. So for them, their hunger for learning is very high. And we actually feel that the impact of our programs is more immediate. It's not waiting till they graduate, Mm. (laughs) sort of happening in real time when they're in their teens and early 20s, actually running a business. In fact, I'll tell you one story. It was in my first year. I had a chance to travel to our awards ceremony for um, young entrepreneurs across Africa. And the award ceremony was in, 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 in Gabon. Um, but the winner that year was, I believe, from Kenya, if I recall. And he, it was the first time anyone had ever given this young man a prize. And he actually um, was running a real business. He employed dozens. I think it was actually over 400 people, if I recall. And it was a garbage collection business. So this young man in his early 20s was in the business literally of collecting garbage and employing you know, dozens of people to do that. And of course, you know, that type of entrepreneur doesn't necessarily get a lot of, um, you know, respect. And for him to be on a global stage with the, uh, you know, the senior government officials, in fact, the head of state from Gabon, I think, attended that meeting as well. So to have him honored in that way, it was life changing for him and his peers and his parents and others just to see that 
experience. It was amazing being there. It was, it was, it, it sort of stayed with me. I guess it would. And I bet you have a lot of different success stories like that, where what percentage of people that you, that go through your program, would you say go more down the entrepreneurial track versus taking a a job being employed by someone else? Yeah. So we actually have that data. It varies dramatically by country, as you can Mm -hmm. imagine, the risk profile of um, entrepreneurs in different countries varies. I, I, I guess I'll share a couple of statistics, which might bring it home. The likelihood of being an entrepreneur um, because you've gone through our programs is, you know, it it multiplies quite significantly. In some countries, it's much as three times more likely. So if you've gone through JA, you are three times more likely to become an entrepreneur. Hmm. Um, But in other countries, um, there may already be a high inclination to pursue entrepreneurship, in which case the, the data we also look at is the likelihood of being you know, a successful entrepreneur who has a business that lasts a long time or employs people, et cetera. So we look at a number of other metrics as well. And, it, and, and most of those metrics also show pretty significant improvement. It varies quite dramatically by cohort and by how long you track the data and how old the entrepreneur is. So to give you a general quick data point, I think would be inaccurate. But what we've done is we put all the data in one report to make it easy to find. So on our website, we actually have an impact report and uh, we track each country's data and show the differences. Oh, great. Yeah, I'd love my um, listeners to go in there. And that's JA Worldwide. Yeah, jaworldwide.org and slash impact, or you click on the impact link and you can see all the data. We're actually pretty good and we're becoming better at tracking um, the nuance of the data because it's it's sometimes very easy to have a great soundbite and say, you know, 50% of young people become entrepreneurs, but really to look at the um, impact of your programs, you've got to look almost two or three levels of detail below that. You've got to look at different cohorts, right? So um, how is it different across countries? How is it different across programs? What happens when you actually have a deep program? Like we have one program called the JA Company Program. That's a very deep program that that kids do over multiple weeks. And then we also have, have lighter touch programs where, the, where young people are just inspired by virtue of being exposed to a role model, an entrepreneur. We've got job shadow days, which are one day long, which actually have a pretty substantive impact. It's very high ROI, right? On one day, you can really change somebody's life while other programs are over 18 weeks and they're more about skill building than about you know, attitude shift or behavior change. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I get into the weeds on this stuff cause I love it, but, um, I, I, I do think that impact tracking is so critical for nonprofits to be good stewards of, of, of funding. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I think that's very powerful and thinking about you kind of zooming back being, um, you know, in charge of it's six different regions that you've got, right. Countries. Well, so we organize our, our, our network, um, as I mentioned, 115 countries, but we are also organized into six regions, mm-hmm. uh, Africa being a region, Europe being a region, et cetera. And that also gives us the kind of structure, which actually most NGOs don't have, I've noticed, which allows us to have a regional level of governance as well. It helps with risk management. It helps with programs. Like, for example, there's some amazing uh, programs that are across you know, all of Africa or, or across all of Europe. Um, and, uh, it allows, I think, um, we actually use some language to describe 
the decision rights and how they vary over, you know, over these different places, it's called fixed flexible freestyle. So some things are fixed, which are globally fixed. Some things are regional, which are flexible. So for example, there's a great European program that will be regional and flexible. And some things are freestyle, which are very locally run and very locally administered. And in some parts of the world, like the United States, you can imagine the um, education is run by local towns. So you actually have to be designed to be very locally flexible because you want to work with the school system. Mm -hmm. While in other countries, it's very centrally run. In Kenya, for example, it's very centrally run. I keep using Kenya as an example. I should use others. But um, while in China, it's a bit of a blend. There's a lot of central control and education. And we're one of the few NGOs that has the permission to operate in Chinese schools. We're very grateful for that. Um, but yet there's a lot of um, uh, sort of complexity in the way that's done in different parts of China. So we've got multiple regional offices even within China. Mm-hmm. Well, with your you know, passion for leadership development, I'd love to hear about your commitment to developing the leaders on your executive team and then other leaders throughout the organization, because I know that's something you've really committed time and money to since you joined JA. Yeah, I mean, I've learned, frankly, along the way myself, the value of leadership coaching. I had no idea how impactful it was before I joined this organization. Um, but as I've had, you know, I, as, as I've had a coach myself, and seen how it's impacted my own um, perception and performance and ability to break through mental barriers, I feel that allowing others to benefit from leadership coaching is something I'm personally passionate about. Um, and I also feel that um, it's very difficult in an organization as global and as complex as ours to get buy-in across the entire network for the same initiatives. Um, However, by virtue of having, you know, everyone who wants one to have a leadership coach, we've actually been able to build more consistency and more buy-in for our strategy by virtue of really investing in people development and investing in the careers of the people who work at the organization. It sounds so obvious to, to sort of, you know, somebody like you, Meredith, who's had years of experience, but it wasn't immediately obvious to me. In my first 360, in my first year, I got a really awful, you know, grading or ranking it was, it was the bottom of my list of cultivating individual talents was what it was called. I remember it quite well. And it's because honestly, we were, we, we were moving so fast in trying to execute and deliver the strategy and launch new programs and in, introduce new technology and people to the organization and grow around the world that I guess I really forgot about the importance of allowing executives or managers in the organization to have their own career development and professional development and really see themselves in the strategy in a very personal way, not in a strategic way, but in a very personal way. And um, I had a coach from uh, Marshall Goldsmith, actually Marshall uh, stepped in and, and really helped me. And then he introduced me to Mark Thompson, who's just an amazing human being. And Mark said, sheesh, we got to work on this and we're going to pick cultivating individual talents because it's important to your organization, not just important to you. So we picked that one thing to really focus on. That's one of the great insights from stakeholder-centered coaching is you pick just one thing. Don't pick five things in your 360 or three things in your 360. Pick one thing in your 360 that you're gonna work on and tell everyone, this is important, tell everyone that you're working on it. 
Uh, don't just keep it private and sort of work on it and say, if it works out, I'll tell them all how great it was. Tell them that you're working on it. And I remember I, I sent an email to the entire executive team and said, you know, here's my 360. Here's how great I did it on, on these things. Here's how awful I did on these things. The only one I'm going to work on is this one. Trust me, if I work on one, I'll actually improve. And I, I'm sure they actually saw because I really did over communicate um, how bringing executive coaching to all of them helped us collectively cultivate individual talents better. And over time, they saw themselves in the strategy, I think, because of that. Mm-hmm. That's such a great story. And I couldn't agree with you more that focusing on just one thing is, is really the key. Since we're a publisher of 360, that's something that we have recommended to people since day one is you're going to dilute your efforts. The other thing, though, talk about in terms of the coaching process is going back to your stakeholders and asking for feed forward, what that is and how that works. Yeah. um, So I've done it many times. I think that first time was one of the first I'd done it, certainly in JA, but one of the first times I'd done it because my previous roles, you know, I was the founder of a company um, and in, most founders typically don't do 360s. And I was certainly not unusual in that way, at least in, in, in those early days in my late 20s and early 30s. And, you know, the type of leader I was, was very much, you know, oh, if Ashish said it, it must be right. So let's do it. And that, that, that has all the problems of the limitations of my own skill set. Um, and, um, and, and my second leadership experience was where I was hired by the venture capital firms to run a business. And that also was a very different kind of leadership because I had to learn how to take somebody else's idea. It wasn't about my idea, it was somebody else's idea and just become a really good leader of people to implement that idea. And at JA, because it's such a global and complex organization, it is not at all about my ideas. It's not even necessarily about leading another person's idea. It's about enabling all the best ideas to come forward and really as a leader, remove obstacles that are in the way of allowing those ideas to blossom and become real projects, right? So it's it's a removing obstacles skill set, mm-hmm. and um, I think when that insight became more clear, I think stakeholder centered coaching allowed that to happen because I wanted people's feedback. I mean, I genuinely wanted people's feedback because I was saw myself as somebody who was not advocating from my point of view, but removing obstacles which were in their way to succeed. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think I welcomed it more. I, I do think in my late 20s and early 30s, I probably would have been very skeptical of 360s, which is, you know, it's faulty logic. But I, I'm thinking back to my, my days of uh, being a founder, and I think I would have found this uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in your own growth over the years, you can see the value of it, it sounds like. And so what impact would you say that having coaches for this group of leaders in your organization, what effect effect has that had on your ability to work well together as well as throughout the organization? Well, I'll say some people loved coaching and just threw themselves into it and others didn't have as positive an experience. And I think it was partly because of the coach, but mainly because um, if you don't open yourself up to want to improve and want to be coached, um, you sort of resist it and you think of it as something imposed by somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I worked really hard to not make it that. I made it opt-in. I did all these, I made incentives. And I, I sort of tried to build a culture where the people who loved it talked about why they loved it and others would therefore want it more. 
Um, but in, in, you know, I think I've learned that trying to force it on people is never a good idea. But you know, I'd say over 75% of our top leaders have raised their hand and said, yes, I want it, which is great. And for the 25% who aren't ready or had it once and don't want it again, or you know, whatever reason, I, I haven't been pushing too hard. Um, but in general, I will say um, it's been transformational for those who've had it, particularly because I think it helps you break through some mental barriers. It really does. I mean, if you've got a great coach and we've had some amazing coaches, I mean, Marshall's introduced us to you know, others in the MG100 group that he has, and some of them are the best coaches in the world. Um, so I think we're very lucky as a nonprofit to have, you know, for example, uh, Prakash Rahman, who is a LinkedIn head of um, leadership development. He coached one of my executives and he's been just a great friend. Just to give you one example, there've been quite a few who've really stepped forward and, you know, been generous with their time. Um, and, I, you know, there's the mental barrier breakthrough and then it's the willingness to actually be heard. Um, and provide feedback for your peers in a very open, welcome setting, which is non-judgmental. And we don't share the 360s widely. I mean, I shared mine just as a role model to get others to feel comfortable with it. But in general, 360s are not about compensation or about evaluation or judgment. It's about personal growth and right. wanting to focus on the one thing to become better at. And, and then people embrace it. Preach it. Preach it. <laughs> <laughs> We've been saying that for decades because initially when 360 was so new, people wanted to look at it as the new performance appraisal. And we'd say, no, 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 don't, don't, uh, love the it. Two. Boards love 360s as performance appraisal. And I've had to fight that battle a few times and said, guys, that's not what it's for. And of yeah. course we have the complexities because we've got board members who work for big companies. And if they do it that way in their company, they want to bring that to JA thinking mm. of best practice. And so at times we've had to bring experts in to have an open dialogue about what best practice is. <laughs> I love that description. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, it's too easy to try to transfer what you've done or how things have worked in one setting to another. And I'm curious if you've had uh, it's great that you had the the coaching. I'm just curious, what other challenges have you faced in taking on your role at JA compared to what you had previously, where you were the head of more of a for-profit organizations? Well, I mean, so I'll start by saying that JA is not an organization that when I joined, that was something drastically wrong that needed to be fixed. It wasn't a turnaround situation at all. It was really a growth opportunity, which is, um, it, you know, I think what JA does and the JA brand is not as widely known as it could be. Um, our board chair called it the world's best kept secret. Um, and I think part of it is because we've historically really thought of ourselves as many different national organizations. And I would say most Americans probably think of Junior Achievement as a largely American organization. And most um, you know, people in the UK think of Young Enterprise as a British organization. And, you know, most people, I would say, even in, in, in Europe, think of JA there as a European organization, not necessarily an American organization. And at times, there's a good reason for that, right? At times, when you're funded by the public sector in Europe, you don't necessarily want to be an American NGO operating in Europe. And, you know, I think given the political climate in, the, in America, it's often not the best thing to be, to be a global organization. So we've, I think, historically been navigating that balance for a long time. And we've 
historically as an organization chosen to be very decentralized in our brand identity. And I've worked very hard over the last few years along with my team. Um, and I've had some amazing people on our team, our, our, our global head of marketing, chief marketing officer is just one person who's just pushed our organization to really think of ourselves as a global organization that has incredible national and local diversity. And I think that slight repositioning matters a lot. Mm -hmm. So it matters because we can then do programs which are cross-border and cross-border programs build empathy, right? I mean, think of one of the skills that young people need for the future. My goodness, empathy is so high on that list. It also mobilizes new sources of capital. We've been able to raise quite a bit of money at the global level because we now have a more global identity. Mm. We've now been ranked as one of the uh, top 10 NGOs in the world for the last three years, partly because we just put our global brand forward more. I mean, you know, rankings only matter so much, but in general, um, I guess one thing I learned about the ranking is when we achieve that milestone, so many in the network, in our, in our global network, start to see ourselves differently. It's a bit like getting an award as a kid, right? When you get an award as a kid, you're like, oh, well, I, I guess I must be good then, right? Uh -huh. And uh -huh. I think I, I sort of saw that as well when we got that ranking is you know, around the global network, we started to see ourselves as one of the leading NGOs in the world. And that also helped us raise our own standards for everything for risk management, through to the way we invest in people, like all the things that you want to do as a successful organization became easier because people saw ourselves as a leading organization. Mm, that's great. Well, I'd love to have you talk a little bit about some of the success stories um, of students. So people understand the kinds of transformations that you as an organization help bring about that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Sure, Tell us well, some of your you. favorites. I, I, I love this question. Um, it, it, it brings back some great memories for me. I'll, I'll start with one in Saudi Arabia. Um, so I've had a chance to travel there a few times and I had a chance to um, actually go to a, an event, not in Saudi, but in, 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 in one of the other countries in the GCC in, in the Middle East. And there was a young woman, I guess girl from Saudi Arabia who was a competitor in one of the competitions we have. We've got all these entrepreneurship competitions. And she was on a team of, I think, four others. And she was the chief financial officer of her student business. And first thing I got to tell you is when you're, you know, in, in your teens and you have a title like CFO, that's a pretty big impact in your life. You start to think, oh, well, if I can be CFO at the age of, you know, 20, I can be CFO at the age of 30. I mean, it's, sort of, it's, it's, it's so much easier to think that way. Or put differently, if you haven't been CFO or CEO at the age of 20, to think of yourself as capable of doing so at the age of 30 is, <laughs> you know, much bigger leap, right? Mm -hmm. So she did, um, she was presenting her business. I forgot what the business was now. And um, the judges were grilling her with lots of financial questions about profit margin, unit economics, growth, you know, um, the math on her slide and the rate of change, a bunch of things. And she answered them all really well. And, you know, she was in full burqa, so you could only see her eyes, right? She's covered in black. You can see her eyes and her eyes lit up you could see her eyes light up when she was answering the questions about money. And she even jumped in when other questions were answered to the team that had anything to do with finance, like she was the expert and she jumped in. And so I came up to her after her presentation and I said, I just want you to know, I think you have a real knack for numbers and finance. It was clear you really have a passion for it and, you, and your answers were very good. And that little comment you know, to me was nothing, but to her, apparently it was a big deal. 
she wrote me this very long, almost two page long, like LinkedIn sort of um, outreach. I think she sent me multiple ones actually and, and said how meaningful that comment was to her. And we kept in touch over the years. And um, uh, the great news is now she's a consultant at KPMG and she sort of chose to move from marketing to finance. I'm sure not just because of my comment, but as she started to have her own identity sort of become clear to her as to what she was good at. Um, I think JA and our, our brand in the Middle East is Injaz, which means achievement in Arabic. Um, as she thought of, you know, the impact of Injaz on, on her, I, I think it truly did change her career trajectory. So I love that story because I think a lot of people have a perception of, of women and girls in Saudi. And I've learned in my own travels that the potential is limitless, boundless, really. Oh, that's, that's great. Yes, the idea of kids getting a bigger image of themselves than what they had previously thought due to, to their experience. I really like that. Uh, so what's another one? Yeah, so I'll tell you one, which is uh, younger kids, okay? So this one's in India. So as you can see, I travel a lot in this job. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I went to a... Um, a day, like a, a day long experience in India where we took um, girls who were in seventh grade from a girls school, we took them to um, a, an office building and gave them a tour and had them meet different executives from that company. The company was GE and it was a GE healthcare division of GE in India. And you know these young girls had walked by this office many times on the way to school, but they'd never gone in because it was sort of behind a fence, et cetera. And um, I think of these girls as like the daughters of like rickshaw drivers. Like they weren't from um, a wealthy part of society. They, they definitely had not been exposed to being in an office of this type before. It, like their first comment when they walked in was, oh my goodness, the air conditioning is amazing. Like that was the first thing at the, which, you know, if, if you're in Mumbai, it's pretty hot. So yeah, air conditioning is, it's always good. But um, so they had a chance to meet different executives over the course of the day. And they saw a lot of, you know, the, the, they saw a lot of senior executives, the head of sales, the head of finance, et cetera, to do their presentations. But then they saw a woman who was um, the head of nutrition for GE hospitals. And she did such a remarkable job in her talk. She started off and she said, you know, I used to be just like you. And now what I do is I give meals to sick people in hospitals. And I do it at scale in you know, X thousand um, you know, beds of, and for Y thousand patients. And she spoke so eloquently and so honestly and so authentically that I, you could see all the young students really connect with her. And I could see their eyes just light up during her talk. And we asked them at the end of the day what they thought of the day and what they remembered. And almost all of them remembered her talk. And we asked them if they're interested in studying chemistry as a result of her talk, because she talked about how she studied chemistry and every single hand went up. So you could see how, when you see the, the applicability of what you study in school to a career and then to a person you want to be like, how that role model can actually really impact what you choose to like and what you choose to not like. Mm -hmm. in school. And I, I remember that story because it's a little bit different than me saying something to somebody. It's more about how you connect um, role models to people. Like for example, if we had, I don't know, 
Richard Branson, right? Talk to students who are girls in India, it might discourage them from being entrepreneurs. But if you have a person like this nutritionist talk to these young girls and say, you could have a career like mine, all of a sudden they see a real role model who's just like them. Mm-hmm. I think being intentional about role models being very similar to the audiences that you serve is one of the lessons that I've certainly drawn from my time at Jail. That's such an important insight. And when you have your programs in the schools, do you bring in any special speakers beyond the volunteers that are helping to teach the curriculum? Well, yeah. So um, there's quite a few guest speakers we have at JA in different settings, sometimes in school settings, increasingly during COVID in an online sort of Zoom format. Um, We also have quite a few board members at JA who themselves are great role models. So we have you know, believe it or not, about 8,000 board members around the JA network, such a big number. I know every, every oh time I share gosh. that, people go, how do you guys run anything with that many board members? Well, I mean, the good news is we're organized into many, many different national and local entities. Um, so 115 countries, you know, many countries have different states and they all have their own board and, you know, local cities, et cetera. So it does add up to a big number. Typically our boards are between 10 people to say 30 or 40 people big. Uh, So they actually run quite well on their own. But that number of board members, many of them are really successful business people. In fact, Mm -hmm. many of them are JA alumni. So we have over 100 million living JA alumni. So we have quite a nice group to draw from. Of course, we don't keep in touch with all of them as well as we could. But in general, um, it's such a great renewable resource, right? We can always come back to these um, amazing business leaders who see the value of what they did through the program and want to give back. Mm-hmm. Well, when we were talking earlier, you know, we were talking about leadership and leadership development. What are you, I know you're passionate about that also in bringing it down to the student level, not just within your own team. What are some of the things you're, you're doing or, or plan to do related to helping students develop leadership skills? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So for example, we have a program in India, which is one of our sort of marquee leadership development programs. We partnered with an organization there called the Global Education and Leadership Foundation, TGELF, T-G-E-L-F, the Global Education and Leadership Foundation. They've developed a curriculum called LEAD, which is all about um, you know, empathy, sorry, about empathy and altruism being part of the definition of leadership. So it's a very, it's very values driven curriculum um, and they do it in schools in India. So um, we are trying to globalize that curriculum. Um, We've been trying to bring it to China, for example. And there's a lot of interest right now around the world in ethics and, um, you know, altruism and empathy being part of the curriculum. So we believe we're at the right place, the right time. Uh, Of course, there are many other, um, you know, J.A., national offices, which also have a great leadership curriculum, but the one in India I felt is a particularly strong one. Um, And uh, so, but to answer your question more at say the 10,000 foot level, you know, our mission has always been to inspire and prepare youth to succeed in the global economy. Increasingly, youth unemployment is a significant problem, particularly in Africa and the Middle East, where the unemployment rates for a young people in their 20s is sometimes 30, 40, 50% in some countries. So we are um, one of the few NGOs that reaches young people at the stage, like a, a young enough 
where you can actually build this sort of sense that you can be a job creator, you can have economic agency when you're older. Um, so even if you're reaching a young girl and, and you introduce her to, set, to STEM skills, and in addition to sort of becoming an expert in STEM or learning chemistry, you actually also impact the mindset of the person to think of themselves as an entrepreneur or somebody who mm. can be an entrepreneur and create a job for themselves and for others. That's very empowering. That really addresses the problem of youth unemployment writ large. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think the education systems are changing in that way in that they're recognizing the importance of this mindset piece. So it's not just all about skills, but it's also about a, a positive psychology and mindset. I think that social emotional learning sort of element to schools is becoming more and more important. I couldn't agree more. I'm so glad to hear you're addressing that because so much of what limits people in their lives is what they think about their possibilities and their opportunities. So it's so cool that you're not just teaching them some of the, I don't want to say technical skills, but the business side of things, but also addressing their beliefs and ideas around what's possible. So that's so exciting. Ashish, I'm so excited about the work that you're doing. And I know that after listening to this conversation, we're going to have some people that go, where do I sign up? You know, how do I learn more? Because I will give you a little testimonial. I have a brother in Virginia Beach who was a volunteer with JA for many years, and he served on the board there for many years also. So he's an example of one of your local uh, board members who's, you know, he and his company were very committed to the work that you all are doing. So I've heard about it for years before I ever got to meet you. So that was cool from a different perspective. Well, that's great. Thank you for us. You know, we love to um, have board members who have such a great memory of JA come back and think of a different role that they want to have because there's so many different ways to help, right? You can be a mentor to young kids. You can be involved with governance. You can be involved with an event. We've got so many events. I mean, unfortunately, COVID's made it hard to continue some of the in-person events, but we historically as an organization have organized such amazing experiences that our volunteers often tell us they feel they get more out of JA than even the youth that they're connecting with because it changes their own perspective and their own life in a way that's so real for them. Mm-hmm. So um, we don't track that or we don't sort of measure it, but I, I, I kind of wish we do sometimes because we hear anecdotally how much impact we make on the adults as well. What are the mentoring opportunities that uh, people can, if they're not going to be able to go in and teach your curriculum, talk a little bit about the mentoring piece. Yeah, sure. So uh, we have an alumni network um, of people who've been through the program and want to continue to stay involved. And I think some of the young alumni, when I say alumni, I think like teens and 20s, not like 50s and 60s, um, they, they actually um, still want to be, be connected to the organization. So I think much of the mentoring actually happens amongst the young alumni. It's, it's sometimes challenging to have the mentoring happening one-to-one in schools because, because many of our programs are actually delivered to classrooms of kids. Mm-hmm. So to have these one-to-one relationships sometimes is tricky. Having said that, there really are also mentoring opportunities that are one-to-one, particularly for the entrepreneurial kids. So um, we have this program I mentioned already called JA Company Program, where effectively you are a mentor to a team of between two and 10 kids, depending on the size of the entrepreneurial team. And you meet with them once a week for a certain number of weeks. And now because of COVID, everything's done through Zoom. So it's, it's very easy actually for mentors to be able to 
um, get that satisfaction of seeing uh, a relationship develop. Yeah, face um, to face. Yes. Mm -hmm. So um, that's one very concrete way that they can get involved is by mentoring entrepreneurial kids. That's great. Well, I know I have a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs that listen to my show, so I know they'll connect with, with what you're saying. And for those that would like to follow up, connect with you, you know, connect with JA, we'll put all the links that you had sent me on the show notes page, but why don't you share that for those that are listening instead of checking out the show notes page? Sure. Well, a couple of things. So jaworldwide.org is the URL of the website, and there's lots of ways you can engage even on that website, you know, signing up for various things. Um, if you want to reach me directly, uh, my LinkedIn profile and, and, and connecting with me through LinkedIn is nice and easy, Ashish Advani. Um, but, you know, if, if you want to get involved with your local JA, so in other words, if you don't necessarily want to connect at a global level, but you want to connect very locally, you can also do that. You, you, you can navigate there through our website, or you can navigate there if you're in the U.S. through um, juniorachievement.org, which is the U.S. website. And that also has a number of links to all the local JAs. You can also just Google your um, state or your city and JA, and you, I'm sure you'll find a website for your local JA that way. So lots of different ways to get involved. I would encourage you though, one of the most fulfilling things you can do is to actually serve on a JA board for a good two to three year term. That gives um, you a sense of sort of not only the governance of the organization, but all the moving parts that allow you to connect at the time and place that you want. So um, I just wanted to sort of do a quick shout out for all the board members who do that, because it really is, I think without these board members, we wouldn't exist. So it's really great to have their support and time. Well, I wanna thank you Ashish for all the excellent work you and your teams across the world are doing to help young people develop as citizens and also as entrepreneurs and future employees perhaps, but as people, your focus on building them up as individuals is fantastic and so needed. So I appreciate you individually and everybody in your organization that's doing this great work. Well, thank you for saying those kind words. I want to appreciate you as well for inviting me, but also all the work that you do on leadership. I've got to tell you, I didn't get a chance to to do a shout out for your book, but I've been using this book and especially the chapter on appreciation. In fact, just before this call, I actually sent some notes of appreciation of people being reminded after reading your book. So thank oh, you. Oh, thank you. And what Ashish is referring to for those of you listening is connect with your team, mastering the top 10 communication skills. Thank you for the shout out about that. And it's so true. That one chapter is so critical for effective leadership is making sure you notice and express appreciation for it, which you did for that student. And that's why she was so touched because it's done so rarely. So thank you for bringing that up. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you. Thanks for tuning in to the Strong for Performance podcast. Now head over to growstrongleaders.com slash free and grab our ebook, Listen Like a Pro. You'll find out how to connect on a deeper level with the people who matter to you. And while you're there, check out our two books, Connect With Your Team and Peer Coaching Made Simple. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell.